This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Although every time I look over there, I see myself looking over there. <laughs> so a couple of days ago, uh, our administrator, I, I said something like, I need to go prepare a Dharma talk. And she said, well, what are you going to talk about? And, uh, and I said, Zen practice. So. Uh, as I was thinking about Zen practice and what is Zen practice and kind of mulling it over, and um, I think I <laughs> we'll see how this goes. <laughs> like, where do you start? So I started by thinking about what are some of the what are some of the elements of Zen practice? What are some of the essential pieces that define Zen practice? What's is there something that's like necessary for Zen practice? Is there, is there a grouping of things that's sufficient? You can say, oh, these this constitutes Zen practice. And then also, just over the last uh, few months as we've been reopening, I've noticed a lot of uh, Interest, new interest, right? people who are curious. And sometimes people will um, you know, submit their questions online. <laughs> There's a contact AZC you know, link on our website. And sometimes people will just ask questions. <laughs> and they go to our administrator, and she's like, oh. <laughs> she's not a Zen practitioner. Right? So she'll forward them to Choro or myself. And usually Choro answers that. <laughs> Yes. The, the more recent one, and maybe the person who asked this question is actually in the room, I have no idea, but one of the recent questions was something like, how important is it to know the lineage of ancestors? How, how, you know, should I start there? <laughs> should I start by studying the ancestors uh, and the lineage of Soto Zen? And when I saw the question, I thought, <laughs> what is the importance of the lineage? And on one hand, I would say the lineage is incredibly important. It's fundamental to Zen, absolutely. But for somebody who's starting out in Zen practice, is it where I would start? Not really. I wouldn't necessarily recommend. Now, if somebody had the, you know, uh, that was their uh, kind of entering point, that's where their curiosity was, then absolutely yes, go study Zen language. So in answering the question, what is Zen practice, there's so much there. There's so many points of entry. There are so many Dharma gates to enter into. However, over and over and over, when you read the founder of our school and his teachings, he always starts in one I don't know what that is. To sit. To sit. To sit now. Phil, did you just make a gesture that I missed? Phil <laughs> just pointed to the zaku. Right? And um, to just sit sounds so simple. Just sit. I mean, we sit all the time. We're sitting at our computers. We're sitting in our cars. We're sitting watching, you know, the latest you know, series on what have you, one of the billion platforms that are out there. Right, so that's not the sitting that he's talking about. Right? He's sitting, he's talking about just sitting. So okay, we can agree, right, that Zazen, just sitting, Shikantaza, is a good place to start. In fact, it's probably the best place to start one's Zen practice. Why is that? Stop. Right? It makes you stop. And then what? 
stop and see what's happening now in this very body, in this very mind, and maybe if you're really advanced in the environment. But starting with what's happening in my mind, what's happening with my body and my breath. So stopping the sort of autopilot churn of our daily life. Right? How often do we have the opportunity to do that? Well, all the time. Right? We have the opportunity all the time. How many, how many times do we take the opportunity to stop in a day? How many times? I mean, we have the opportunity, I would say, moment after moment. You know, maybe if you want to go even more, more coarse than that, breath by breath, you take the opportunity to inhale, receive everything that is uh, appearing in this consciousness, ah, and then exhale, let it all go. This is stopping, a certain kind of stopping. So then I was thinking about kind of like what, you know, we've got so many things, things going on here at the center, for example, in the next, just in the next week, like we just had a full moon ceremony on Wednesday where we do what we do every month. We come together and we do a ceremony of uh, recommitting to the Bodhisattva vows. So there's another element, right? The central element is the element of sila or ethics, ethical conduct, right? the study of the precepts. And in Soto Zen, there are 16 Bodhisattva precepts. And every month we get together and we chant them as a way of recommitting. Those of you who are wearing Buddha's robe, whether it's a big robe or a portable robe, all of those people have taken the precepts, have received the precepts formally in a public setting where they said, yes, I will, yes, I will, yes, I will follow this path. So it's another element, but it's not essential to start your Zen practice. Right? But ethical conduct is one of the, um, the fundamental three practices of Buddhism. Right? Sila, meaning ethical conduct, samadhi, concentration, and prajna, wisdom, insight, into you know, clear seeing, into the fundamental nature of reality. So that's a, that's a big one. <laughs> Sometimes people come to Zen practice because they just want to stop the churn of uh, selfing. It's exhausting having a self. Oh, right? It's so exhausting. It's like the self wants this, it doesn't want that. It gets pulled this way and that way. It can't stop thinking. It can't stop obsessing. It finds itself doing things it doesn't want to do. Ah, life. This is a human life. So we had this Bodhisattva full moon ceremony just this past week. And then up in this next upcoming week, we have a ceremony celebrating Earth Day. And again, another element of Zen practice is to have ceremonies. Right? Ceremonies of celebration, ceremonies, ceremonies of grief and mourning. All kinds of ceremonies. Why are ceremonies, I would say ceremonies is probably a big piece of Zen practice, although some people may disagree. I would say that if you don't do ceremonies ever, uh, there's a big piece that you're missing because Zazen itself is a ceremony. Right? The ceremony of ritual enactment of enlightenment. That's Zazen. Ritual. Create the space, you fluff your cushion, you close the door if you're, uh, you've got, maybe you don't close the door if you have cats, but sometimes cats might just kind of sit on you. Or, but you know, you carve out some time and you carve out some space. That itself is one of the elements of ceremony. And then intentionality to take care of your environment so that you can enter into that space 
with your full awareness. Just, I'd say, absolutely conducive to waking up. It's part of the, the project of Zen practice, and it is the project of Zen practice, is to wake up. So, this coming Friday, we're having an Earth Day ceremony in which we, uh, we have invited people to write out an intention for the next year. How do you intend to take care of the Earth and all things in it? There's no better time than now to ask that question. So we get together, we write our intentions, and then we will chant together. So another part of the ceremony, we just chanted before this Dharma talk. So chanting, another element of Zen practice, again, is it essential? I don't know if it's essential, but it certainly helps. Why? Somebody asked me recently, what is the point of, of chanting? Dopa Samson asked me, why, why do we chant? Is it okay to chant by myself? Or do I need to chant with other people? When you chant, right, it's what is the point of chanting? What are you doing when you chant the sutra? One of the teachings of the Buddha or one of the commentaries of the many, many teachers. What happens in the body and your mind when you chant? It's like a wholehearted thing. Like it envelops you. Yeah, you're using your whole body to do it. Right. Now, what if you're not wholehearted about chanting? What if you don't like chanting? It's <laughs> perfectly legitimate. You don't like chanting. Yeah. I think it also connects you to the lineage, to the sort of the connectivity, mm -hmm. history. Yeah, now it's an interesting way. Like, I would say chanting is also. It's a form of Zen study, right? How many times have you chanted, for those of you who chant, <laughs> how many times have you chanted something over and over and over again just to find that you're not really thinking about it while you're chanting, right? In fact, in some ways, the instruction is don't think. Stop thinking about what you're chanting. Just let the chant, let the chant be the chant. Embody, fully, you know, uh, Plunge into the chant. Find your voice. Harmonize with everyone else who's chanting. Listen with your ears. Right? And usually when we're chanting, we do bows. We also bow. And bowing is another element. Right? Bringing together our wisdom and compassion. I just sort of, in the morning, I think I said a few things about bowing to the group after sitting. Like, when do we bow? Does it matter? What's the spirit of bowing? What's the spirit of uh, chanting after bowing? So in the form of study, we're chanting this sutra, this teaching, right? and it's kind of like we're soaking. We're letting it wash over us. We're not trying to control it, although we are harmonizing. But that's different from control. Say the kokyo is, is kind of the person, the person who's leading the chant. It's kind of their responsibility to set the pace and to hold it for the rest of the group. And the rest of the group basically puts themselves into it. And when you're chanting, you're, again, full breathing. Right? You really get in touch with your breath. And as the person who's leading the chant, especially in a ceremony like the full moon ceremony, you're bowing in between. You have to really be in touch with your breath, which takes you out of your mind and into your body. And so we have that opportunity every day that we're here of chanting together. And in ceremonies, we're celebrating. We're paying homage. We're paying our respect to our lineage, to the teachers that came before us, all the way down to the Buddha. And the Buddha is before Buddha. 
Then there's uh, Zen forms, which come across within chanting and bowing and sitting and moving around the zenda, moving around the temple, right? And there's all kinds of little details, many, many little details. And uh, it can be kind of overwhelming, especially if you're, you know, how many of you were here for beginner's instruction? Old timers here for beginners. That's fantastic. <laughs> so, in you know, in the beginners instruction, which I think today we're actually holding, uh, Pat will be holding a beginners uh, zazen instruction instruction for instructors, <laughs> which is uh, an absolute gift. Right? It's taking this incredibly profound yet simple hard to do sometimes, practice, and making it available for others. So in terms of uh, all of these things so far, all of them are in, um, what's the, the main point is to wake up to this body and mind be open to our own karmic hindrances, as well as our karmic, uh, what's the opposite of a hindrance? Strength. Strength. Yeah. We open ourselves to it, which is not, uh, it's not always pleasant, right? Zen practice is not always pleasant. So sometimes people come to a meditation center and they think the point is to peace out, right? And I would say this is, you know, this is a good starting point too, right? Because most of the time when we first come to a Zen practice place or a, a meditation center, why are we there? Because <laughs> yes, we're suffering, usually, but not always. Sometimes we, you know, we like the Japanese aesthetic, we, you know, we're pulled along by a friend, who knows, there's all kinds of reasons. But most often, uh, I would say, it's the suffering that brings us here. And, why, and suffering uh, is universal. It, in fact, is the first noble truth, the noble truth of suffering. Whether we're suffering now or we think we're suffering, if you look even a little bit closely, you'll find some suffering there. So that's what brings us here. But then oftentimes we think the point is to stop suffering. And maybe in a way that's true. We are endeavoring to stop our suffering. But it's not like stop our suffering by cutting it out of our life. Right? Oh, identify the things that are causing me suffering and get rid of them. Sometimes people think that that's the point of coming to a Zen center, is to learn how to block out all our suffering and only think happy, positive thoughts. Now, that will only get you so far. <laughs> of a pitfall. So when we come to a Zen center because of our suffering, uh, it's usually like, okay, we've tried all these other things. We've tried controlling our life. We've tried controlling our mind. And Zen practice gives us a very big, wide open field. It's not that there's no container. There's a huge container. The forms themselves are a huge container all these different rules and regulations and do this and don't do that. And I would have to say that of the Zen centers that I've been to, I feel like Austin Zen Center is one of the most lax Zen centers I've ever seen. <laughs> I need to get out more. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably true. How about relaxed? Yes, relaxed, right? So it's not just, but not too relaxed. <laughs> I mean, you know, we give Zazen instruction, and it's just the basics to get you in the door and to get you to the point where you're no longer afraid to cross the across the room, right? But you don't want to, you know. But then there's like a lot of instruction on how do you sit, your posture. There's a lot of training on how you work with your posture and your breathing, right? Not because we all want to make you obsessive compulsive. <laughs> <laughs> or to feed some obsessive compulsive like wish to control. 
actually it's like setting up the conditions so that you can relax. Because we all know that when we're super distressed, it's really hard to relax. It's kind of like antithetical to relaxation. So sometimes I often, you know, I'll, I'll be sitting here and, um, you know, I can sort of see the room and when people seem like they're really agitated, you know, sometimes very, the telltale signs, somebody sighs loudly, ah, <laughs> 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 wiggle around, ah, <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's all part of the process. So it's not like, just like in a, in a, like a yoga asana practice, so I'd say Zen is a yogic practice. But in like an asana practice, it's not like you're just trying to get into the correct, like the form, you know, the perfect asana, and then you're trying to get your body into it. And oftentimes people who are new to yoga will say, well, I can't do that, therefore yoga is not for me. Whereas good yoga teachers will explain it's not about getting into this particular form, it's about heading in that direction within your body. Right? So if your knee doesn't go that way, don't try and force it because you think it should. There's something wrong with you because it doesn't. Right? It's actually how do you listen to your body? How do you become intimate with this body? Here, now. The body doesn't, uh, I keep saying body and mind, but it's like body-mind. It's not, they're not separate. And then, so I, I know I'm going to probably skip around a bit. Beyond ceremonies, the day after we have our Earth Day, we're having a Sangha work day. What's the point of working? Why would you come work? You worked all week. Why'd you go with this? Joel. To generate <laughs> sure. <laughs> For what purpose? What do you want to do with that capital? chance to step out of the self and be in service of all beings. Why go to a Zen center to do that? I mean, we can do that all the time. How many of you feel like in your work, you're stepping out of yourself and generating, what you say? And being, in and being in service of all beings. Congratulations. Lifelong, a lifelong endeavor, right? What is right livelihood? How do I put my effort and my body and my mind into service of something bigger than me and mine? Another fundamental element of practice. Yes, Bill. Um, I used a little phrase uh, somewhat in jest this morning about branching streams uh, transportation, which is you can take your practice off the cushion. And I think taking your practice off the cushion is a nice, nice little phrase for that. It is. This, this area. Yes, I agree. And work practice is one way that we do that. We can take our practice off the cushion. I mean, when you're walking meditation, you're also taking your practice off the cushion. You're taking it into motion. But work practice in our uh, Historically, in Zen, one of our most revered Zen masters, Baijan, he's famous for many things, but one of the most one of the things he's really famous for is saying, a day without work is a day without food. To the Zen monks, very different. This is a fundamental change in the history of Buddhism. I have to say, because if you go back to the time of the Buddha, to then many centuries later, monks did not work. In fact, they were prevented from working. Right? Monastics did not work. They begged. 
that was their work. Their work was sitting, studying sutras, often through chanting, uh, and then begging. So that, that all changed when Buddhism got to China. And so Baijong brings in this uh, radical concept at the time that actually our practice extends off the cushion and into service and exertion. My own teacher, oftentimes, he, he uses the term uh, for this, you know, taking your practice off the cushion, continuous contact. When we sit zazen, what are we doing? We are like coming back to now, now, now. Any thoughts that we have, we let go. Just let go of these thoughts come. They are secretions of the mind. They come, we can't stop them, but we can let them go. And every thought that comes, especially like the, the really, you know, the hindrances, those thoughts, we get to wrestle with those because they want to stick to us. <laughs> but we let them go, let them go, let them go. Coming back to this moment. And our mind, in our, in our uh, body and mind, we enter into this moment over and over and over and over and over again. It's very, and in some ways, like it, this, it, zendos are set up to do that. Especially, I think, in Soto Zen, where you get a blank wall. <laughs> you get a blank wall so that you don't have any distractions. You've got your little two and a half or three by something like that, some zabaton to sit on. It's your cushion for your period of zazen. No one's going to come try and take it away from you. Hopefully, and you sit. You put yourself into this uh, position, the same position that the Buddha put himself into under the Bodhi tree. You inhale and you exhale. You find your stability in your core, long spine, crown reaching up. You might take on a, a mudra that allows you to one, have something that you can also focus on in your posture, but also as an energetic yogic posture of connecting your energy. I'll get into the more subtle details about that, but that's for the Zazen instruction. <laughs> right? So you, when we do this, uh, how many times have you gotten up from a period of Zazen and it's like, all that concentration and cultivation of presence just kind of goes out the window because you're like, okay, what's next? I got to get to lunch, <laughs> or I got to get back to the thing that uh, that I need to get done. How many people have done that? <laughs> like a lot. So work practice is a way of coming together, and, I, and again, I'd say this is another big piece of Zen practice is uh, not just Zen practice, but practices. Practice of only a Buddha and a Buddha. We do this practice together. We have places like Zen centers so that we can foster a sense of community because we learn from each other. We aggravate each other, which is perfect, right? If everything was all blissed out, I mean, it'd be peaceful a while, then we'd get bored. <laughs> no, it's like, actually, when, when somebody has a, an issue or a problem, as long as it's not too big, <laughs> um, as, as long as it's not completely disruptive, actually, it's really good to have this opportunity to bump up against one another. Right? We're all so different. And we all come with our baggage. Right? But the one thing that unites all of us who come to a Zen center is the desire to wake up. It's the wish to cultivate bodhicitta. And so whatever happens, we always come back to sitting. We always come back to letting go. So all the grumbling and the crushes and the whatever, whatever comes up, when we go into the zendo, we just let it all go. And the zendo is big enough to hold everything. Sometimes. Most of the time. Sometimes we, we say to somebody, 
I'm sorry, but you're being too disruptive. Please leave the Zendo. I don't know if that's happened since I've been here, but I've seen it happen. But again, for the most part, we really have a large, uh, we want this open space to allow everybody universally, right? Because this practice is universal. You don't have to be a Buddhist to practice Sazen. You don't have to be a Buddhist to wake up. You don't have to be a Zen Buddhist. You don't even have to be a human being to wake up. So, in all of this, uh, these are some of the elements. Another element that I you often hear about as being essential to Zen practice is meeting with a teacher. Why is that? What's a teacher? Oftentimes we think, you know, all things are my teacher. In fact, in the ordination ceremony, the, uh, the receiving the precept ceremony, there's a phrase in that ceremony where the doshi, the officiant, says to those who are receiving precepts, let all things be your teacher. So what is a teacher? What's the importance of having a teacher? Pat. Rein in your wild ego. <laughs> <laughs> to help rein in your wild ego. How do they do that? They don't try and control you. If you feel like your teacher is trying to control you, then ask them about it. <laughs> Why are you trying to control me? They help you reflect on what? Inside, I, would say, I would say your Buddha nature, which all beings, without exception, have Buddha nature. This ability, or I don't even say ability, ability is kind of too strong a word. This wakefulness, without exception. Even even the ones who like you think no, <laughs> no, they don't have Buddha nature. But in this school. There's a, a, a cultivation of a particular kind of trust. Right? And one of the functions of a teacher, because they just happen to be a little further along on the path, they've had their own struggles, right? and they've come to peace with their struggles. And they have a, developed a certain level of trust in this path. Right? So they're able to reflect the Buddha nature that's inside each one of and of course, to, uh, to poke you when you need poking. Many Zen teachers uh, throughout history, there have been very many different styles, and, and just as there are uh, you know, as many mines as there are grains of sand in the Ganges River, right? teachers are all very different. But Universally, I would say, the teacher's job is to take their own ego out of it as much as they can and as much as they are able right? and, and be a reflection, to be a mirror. It's not that teachers don't have judgments or have opinions. And uh, the further along you go down the path, you can start developing a relationship with a teacher where you're, you ask for a little bit more. Hey, I want a little bit more correction or feedback or poking. And some teachers are known, like Master Matsu, who's known for shouting and hitting. <laughs> and people, some of the disciples in his school were also known for, you know, yanking on people's noses and things like that, as a way of, you know, basically pulling the student or the uh, or a teacher or some other being, pulling them out of their uh, their sleep pulling them out of their comfort zone. So it's interesting because so many people start practice because they're trying to avoid being stressed out. And then they come to a Zen center and then somebody starts yelling. 
I have to say, I haven't done much yelling recently, but sometimes it happens. <laughs> what? Nobody <laughs> <laughs> yelling. <laughs> 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 one time, one time in, the, in the Sashim, Blanche Hartman, who is the founder of this temple, or we, we selected her as the founder of this temple because she was the teacher of all the people who were also founders of the temple, first teachers here. But Blanche, uh, Shungo Zanke Blanche Hartman, during a Sashim, she had her, her uh, Kiyosaku, which is this, the hitting stick. Right, called, sometimes called the waking waking up stick. Which just to say, you most temples that I've seen use it, you have to ask for it. People don't just hit you. You have to actually ask to be hit. And it's usually to relieve the stress in your shoulders when you're sitting long, long hours day after day. But during this uh, one period of zazen, it's like, you know, that period of zazen for those of you who've done day-long retreats, like it's kind of after lunch, First period of zazen after lunch, and it's like, oh, it's a sleepy, sleepy time. <laughs> You're full, you know. Maybe a couple more periods of zazen, then somebody will come serve you tea, but it's usually herbal. <laughs> but anyway, so she's sitting there, and people are, you know, you, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't sitting out, facing out, because I was a new student. But um, she talks about this story as well as having my own experience of it. But, you know, I think she basically looked around the zendo and saw people nodding. And so she picks up her kiyosaku. She just slams it on the ton, like probably louder than she thought she was going to do it. And the whole zendo just like, <laughs> woke up, right? They woke up. But some people in the zendo started crying. Right? I mean, it was like, whoa. Right? And a good friend of mine was one of those people. And talking to her afterwards, she was just like, it wasn't like just something got triggered, right? Something was triggered in me. Some, you know, maybe it was an old trauma. You know, is it okay? Did Blanche feel bad? Probably. She probably did. Would Master Ma have felt bad? I don't know. I, don't <laughs> <laughs> I mean, again, if it, it was in service of something, of her waking up, and that's the point, right? But how do you know what's too far? You don't. So it's a dance. So getting back to this this uh, this idea of stress, a couple of years ago, I think I talked about stress in a Dharma talk. I talked about the you know the distinction between distress and eustress. You all know that distinction? So it turns out that stress, we you know, you think of stress as like good or bad, stress. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, of course. Turns out, no, not always so. Right? When studies are done on stress, what actually makes all the difference is the person's uh, relationship to stress or their belief about stress. If you ask people, you know, what's your relationship to stress? Do you think stress is always bad? The people who think stress is bad, it is bad. <laughs> but for those who think stress is good or can be good, then even going through the same kinds of stress, those who feel whose orientation towards the stress is to be curious about it, to welcome it even. Right? Without stress, you can't grow. Let's say you're going to become a new parent. Stressful or not stressful? I've never been a parent, but I would imagine that'd be pretty stressful, but probably the good kind of stress. So it turns out that these different kinds of stress, there's distress where you become dysregulated, right? It's too much stress for you to handle. You, know, you all know how this is, right? Sometimes, you know, stress in the body is actually kind of an excitement. It's an aliveness. You all know the, the, uh, the neurohormone oxytocin, sometimes called a cuddle hormone? It's what... Uh, Mothers and babies, you know, secrete from their pituitary oxytocin, and it kind of—it's a connector. It makes you feel connected. Right? Turns out it's a stress hormone, <laughs> but unlike other stress hormones, like you know, adrenaline is another example of a stress hormone. What's the what's the function of adrenaline? 
is to pump, you know, it's to open your blood vessels and pump blood so that you can, in a heartbeat, flee or fight. So it sends your blood to your extremities as opposed to, to your digestive tract. And without it, we would not all be here. <laughs> we would not have survived. The problem with stress is when stress becomes overwhelming and then it turns, it flops into distress, right? We become dysregulated. That stress, you know, increases your heart rate, but it also constricts your blood vessels. Not good. We found in these some of these studies is that when you are stressed, but you think of stress as being not necessarily negative at least, but sometimes positive, your blood, your heart rate still goes up when you're under stress, but the constriction doesn't happen. And interestingly, with oxytocin, which is, I found this is amazing, that as a stress hormone, not only does oxytocin, uh, uh, it's, a, it's like an, it's an anti-inflammatory, it's a stress hormone, but it also has the same effects that allow for calming, right? For example, oxytocin is what makes you, when you're feeling distressed, find a friend. It lets you, it actually makes you more social. It leads you to try to connect. We're social creatures. The other thing it does, it's an anti-inflammatory. And rather than constricting blood vessels, it dilates. So it allows for that blood to flow as opposed to get stuck. So in terms of stre the stress, right, we're not trying to keep the stress out. We're trying to examine our relationship to it, to know when is it too much, when is it too little. Right? This is the famous analogy of the liar, L-Y-R-E, right? What produces the appropriate note on this instrument? The string is too tight? What does it sound like? Right, the string will snap. If it's too loose, not so good, doesn't sound so good either. So you find that middle way, another huge element. You can see my conundrum when I was like, this is practice, and how far can I go? And so I think meeting with a teacher, hopefully, is a stressful thing sometimes, but not too much, but maybe just enough. But sometimes it goes to be too much, it gets to be too much. Sometimes it's just boring because it's not enough. But the very uh, at the very least, meeting with a teacher should be challenging, and hopefully, and ideally, in just the right amount, which you don't know what that is. None of us do. And so, so much of the fundamental practice of Zen is asking that question, what's too little, what's too much? How do you know? If you're not completely connected to your body-mind, how will you know when you're stressed out? How will you know when something is too much? And sometimes it might feel like it's too much, and then after sitting a little bit, you're like, that was actually just right. And sometimes it takes a zazen period, sometimes it takes years. I'm going to look at my notes for a second. A couple of weeks ago, I think the last time I gave a Dharma talk was at the same day that uh, Pat received her lay entrustment, authorizing her as a lay Zen teacher. I think at that Dharma talk I was uh, rambling on as I do, but I think I kept coming back to this question of like, well, what's the fun, like, what's the, what's the point? What's the most important point? And Suzuki Roshi, I think I mentioned Suzuki Roshi. You know, famously, he, he would say, this is the most important point, and it would always be something different. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, but, but often you come down to come down to the most important point is to ask the question, what is the most important point? Okay. Not in an intellectual way, but in a turning the light inward and really being curious to what the answer is that comes out of you when you ask the question. Not to think about like, oh, <laughs> but to actually like give yourself a wide open space to not know the answer and to be like, huh, I wonder what that is. What is the most important point? And on one of our many, many forums, uh, you know, we have like Discord and Breeze and Slack forum on the website, one of our recent forums, somebody asked this question, like, I'm sitting zazen a lot, sometimes I feel like I don't know what the point is. What is the point? And I thought, what a perfect question. This is wonderful, right? This is Zen practice. And so, you know, you can go down the list again in the effort of trying to identify what is, what is this Zen practice that we do? Like what's the point of uh, sitting zazen? What's the point of chanting? What is the point of service? What is the point of work practice? What is the point of community? You know, community is challenging. <laughs> what's the point of meeting with a teacher? All of these things, to ask these questions with the curiosity, how fantastic. And if we, if, if, you know, when somebody comes to a place of practice like this one, if they leave with a little bit of curiosity about any of these questions, then we have done our job, <laughs> in some sense, right, as a, a welcoming place for self-inquiry. And that leads me to the, maybe the last thing I'll say about Zen practice, studying self, which all of these things are in service of. Studying the self as it arises and falls away moment after moment. And uh, I won't, don't have time to go into Dogen's fanciful Genjo Koan, but it translates as actualizing the fundamental point. And if you haven't read it, I encourage you to go do so. To study the self is to forget the self, is what is this line comes from. What does it mean to forget the self? To forget the self is to be actualized by merely appearances. When actualized by myriad things, your body and mind and the bodies and minds of others drop away and no trace of realization remains. The Genjo Koan is every time I read it. And I've been reading the Ganjo Khan for a long time. Long time. I find something new. And I've chanted it. I don't know how many times I've chanted the Ganjo Khan a lot. But again, it's like when I chant it, I'm not really thinking about it. I'm just chanting it. I'm just being wholehearted and putting my full breath into it. And then later on, you know, walking down the streets see something and it reminds me of some phrase just kind of bubbles up to the surface and I appreciate it for that. I want to end with a poem. See I like have all these things. Gosh, didn't get to that. <laughs> but I want to I want to read Hakuin's poem, The Song of Zazen. And there's many translations. I like this one. All beings are from the very beginning Buddha. It is like water and ice. Apart from water, no ice. Outside living beings, no Buddhas. Not knowing it is near, they seek it afar. What a pity. It is like one in the water who cries out for thirst. It is like the child of a rich house who is strayed away among the poor. The cause of our clinging, sorry, the cause of our circling, the cause of our circling through the six realms 
is that we are on the dark paths of ignorance. Dark path upon dark path treading. When shall we escape from birth and death? The Zen meditation of the Mahayana is beyond all our praise. Giving and morality and the other perfections, taking of the name, repentance, discipline, and the many other right actions, all come back to the practice of meditation. By the merit of a single sitting, he destroys innumerable accumulated sins. How should there be wrong paths for her? So, I don't know if there are any questions or comments before we close. I'll open it up for a brief bit before we do the uh, closing chant. Actually, let's do the closing chant. We have a little bit of time. If you need to leave, you may leave. <laughs> Say something about violence in the Zendo. <laughs> the Kiyosaku, our, our lineage stopped using it at a certain point, in part because it did create trauma for some people, the sound of hitting, even if though people were asking for it. And I was in a Zendo, not in our lineage, when this the Kiyosaku was being carried and people all around me were putting their hands in Gasho and asking for it. And it was just loud. You know, I mean, every few steps, smack, smack. So like, how's anybody supposed to sit through this? <laughs> so I'm sort of glad we stopped using it. But I think one thing to remember is that, you know, kind speech and compassion don't always look gentle. So if a teacher yells at you, I'm not talking about me or Mako necessarily. <laughs> if somebody yells at you or, you know, like all these teachers in the past who were slapping their students and hitting their students, it was out of the deepest compassion. And that's how it was expressed. So it's, it's not just like beating people up right. because you can, you know, that that's the motivation. And sometimes, yeah, it backfires. But that's that's the I think it's important for, for us to say something about that, because in our culture, there's a lot of trauma and a lot of violence. Thank you. Thanks for the talk. I am having a really strong reaction to that idea that someone hit someone out of I feel like that is just not all something that resonates with me. That's why we don't do it anymore. <laughs> yeah, Green Gulch, actually, the Kiyosaku is sitting in the back of the altar, which is one of the places it normally sits, and it has a big rock on it. <laughs> so it's there. And you have one in the room. Again, you don't use it. I, I agree with Charo that, like, I used to be really into Kiyosaku, just like, oh, it's down, you know, and it's like, in the sense of you're sitting long hours and your shoulders hurt, and someone's walking along with Kiyosaku, and you're like, oh, please. What, what, what has replaced the Kiyosaku, like, some places? Because <laughs> of the sock. She's always like, you walk around and, like, look at your posture, and they'll adjust your posture, and they'll be like, 
but what you just said of like sometimes you end up hurting each other but if I give somebody some feedback about like no do it this way hold your hand you know, something like that that might trigger something in them and I don't necessarily know what that is right but whatever it is even when we're just you know when it's students with each other right? no do it this way I don't want you to do it that way you know, this is the bumping into each other. We do. The only way it works, I would say, the only way it works is if we continually come back to the Zendo and sit together. It does not work to gather a bunch of people and have them running around doing various things if they're not practicing Zazen. I mean, it works. It's just, you know, people get upset and then they leave, and, and that always happens. But this this room, like you keep saying, this room can hold it all, but only because we use it that way. And so if someone starts crying in the zendo because somebody made a loud noise, right, all of us in the zendo, we breathe that in. Right? And hopefully there's a feeling of compassion that naturally arises at the, the sound of suffering. And just to say, crying isn't just isn't always suffering. Crying is a release of uh, tension. You have tears of joy. And we don't know what's going on for somebody. So it's one of the reasons why, like in the Zendo space, if someone's crying, we ask people to not go and try and take care of them by offering them a tissue or coming over and saying they're there. Maybe after we sit, we come from the Zendo, come out of the Zendo, we might, if we're good friends with that person, or we are not good friends with the person, but we care, we might find ourselves inquiring, hey, are you okay? Right? That's fine. That's wonderful. Is it necessary? Not necessarily. <laughs> but in the Zendo, we actually, uh, we give a lot of trust that this space and this practice can hold all of it. And I'd say that's one of the one of the main things I think that a teacher does. Is they have trust in Buddha nature and can reflect that. And that's I, I can't tell you how important that is in my own practice, my own path. If I didn't have somebody reflect back to me, you're okay in my lifetime, I don't even know who I'd be. I'm just tearing up thinking about it. You know, whatever it is that you're experiencing, whatever shame or heartbreak or feelings of not good enough, yes. I think this is really one of the best descriptions of a teacher uh, teacher relationship. Yes, this practice of, um, you know, we say that we have the Zen as a practice of fearlessness. How do you practice fearlessness? Does it mean eradicating your fear? It's <laughs> 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 turning towards it with your confidence and faith, trust that it's okay. It's what makes us human. And we support each other. In doing it. And when one person does it, another person can see that and say, that's possible. I too can do this. I too can turn towards that which I don't want to turn towards, <laughs> ultimately, the things that scare me. Yeah. 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 Ye
we breathe, we breathe together. Whether it's in chanting and or walking meditation or raking leaves, you know, the, the silent work practice of like doing something together in silence with breath, right, and motion. But this is a connecting of one Buddha nature and another Buddha. This is Buddha and Buddha right there. And where in the world is that the project? <laughs> that is the project. So thank you all very much for being here and for embarking on this path of practice with me and with each other. <laughs>